Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallden. This summer, we will be reissuing our all-time top 10 episodes. We hope you enjoy revisiting these episodes with us. The Witness to Yesterday team is working hard, and we're excited to bring you the next season in September 2023. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Let's agree that we import a lot of stuff from the United States. Hardware, software, material, cars, you name it. We import music, theater, cinema, literature. In contrast, our politics seem to be remarkably immune to American imports, I would argue. Though both liberalism and conservatism in Canada share traits with their American counterparts, it's fair to say that they have evolved along their own distinctive paths. Protest politics are also homegrown, but I often find myself thinking that they're more susceptible to being borrowed from the outside. Both the communist impulse and the fascist impulse that existed in Canada from the 1920s through the 1950s seem to be heavily borrowed from outside. That question comes up with the Ku Klux Klan, which has been very active in this country over almost a century. To talk about it, I asked Alan Bartley to join me. He is an adjunct professor of history at Carleton University and the author of The Ku Klux Klan in Canada, A Century of Promoting Racism and Hate in the Peaceable Kingdom. It's published by Formac Publishing and we reached him at his office in Ottawa. Alan Bartley, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be with you. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Take me to December 1st, 1924 in New York City. Yes, interesting date. Um, December 1, 1924, uh, in New York City, sees three men come together to negotiate and sign a contract to create an organization in Canada uh, to be called uh, the Ku Klux Klan of Canada. Uh, the three men are uh, James Henry Hawkins, uh, who's a native of uh, Virginia, uh, Charles Lewis Fowler, who's a native of well, not quite sure where he's a native of, but it's the American South, but he's certainly based out of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, temporarily relocated in New York City. And we have Richard Cowan, who's an investment banker from uh, Toronto, who's recently uh, come back to Canada, to Toronto, from New York. He's been there for several years as an investment banker. Uh, comes back to Canada, and while he's been in New York, he's seen the growth of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States and particularly in New York City. So he notices in Canada that's a very haphazard Klan presence and uh, takes it upon himself to reach out to Fowler in particular uh, and to suggest that they could create uh, a Canadian branch of the Ku Klux Klan. And so he responds to an invitation to come back down to New York. And so he and uh, Hawkins and Cowan meet, uh, and they consider the way forward. And the way forward, as it turns out, 
is a signed contract to create the Ku Klux Klan of Canada. So, Alan, is, does the Ku Klux Klan become a branch plant in Canada? Not as it was legally structured. It was a Canadian uh, entity. Uh, monies were sent back to the American clan, um, but in its legal structure and in its uh, way forward, it was in its own right a Canadian organization. Hmm. Now, let, I have to say, I really enjoyed your book as a historian. It is encyclopedic, and the pictures you provide, I thought, were just remarkable, scary remarkable. But I have to ask, why is it important for us to know about these sick bastards who joined the KKK in Canada? Yeah, I'm going to quibble a little bit with sick bastards in the 1920s, but I take your point. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan has had a presence in this country for almost a century. Uh, it was extremely well organized in the 1920s and early 1930s. It had lingering elements through the rest of the 20th century. There was a resurgence in the early 1980s. Uh, this was a much more ideologically driven clan. It was certainly organized. Uh, it engaged in the same kinds of activities that uh, we've come to associate with the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. Um, and it became a victim of its own uh, illegitimacy, if I can call it that. Um, but the Klan still has an attraction for some Canadians, uh, and we still see people in Canada um, referring to it as, uh, at, as, as being associated with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, whether they are or not, I think, is an open question, but in their own minds, they are. And there's some organization to it uh, in a physical sense, but much more of a cyber presence in the last 20 years or so. But the ideology that the Klan created, because it did create its ideology in the 1920s and early part of the 20th century, is very much still with us and animates a lot of groups and individuals in this country up to the present day. And so for that reason, uh, I think... I feel that the Klan continues to be relevant to discussions of the political scene in this country, uh, albeit a, a marginal scene, an extreme scene, uh, but it still takes its inspiration from things that happened 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And therefore, that's why I think it's important. It's a remarkable story. How did the KKK come to Canada Beyond, I mean, beyond that contract uh, that was signed in New York City, you spend um, really wonderful pages at the opening of your book on the 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 projection and reception of Birth of a Nation, the movie. Absolutely, uh, the Birth of a Nation was a two-hour recruiting film, if I can put it that way, for the Klan. It certainly served that purpose in the United States. And when the clan, when the birth of a nation came to Canada, it enjoyed a huge success in showings across the country. It was a sellout uh, in most major centers. It uh, was brought back year after year after year, uh, well into the early 1920s, and really only faded away after film turned into a into the talkies, and therefore it had less of an appeal. But in terms of the image it created and presented of the Klan as a virtuous organization protecting a white society in the southern United States, protecting white institutions and white women in particular, uh, the Klan was a sellout. And when it, or pardon me, the, the film was a sellout. And uh, when it featured across the country, 
this happened in 1915. The First World War was on. There really was not uh, an opportunity in that environment for organization to occur, but it certainly created the cultural climate for the clan to flourish in the following years after things became much more organized. We know the KKK was born in the years of Reconstruction in the American South, but why would a guy like Cowan, who's a Canadian, uh, think it would find fertile ground in Canada? What was his thinking? Let's be quite clear about the clan's motivations in the 1920s. They were primarily profit-driven. Ah. And Cowan was a businessman, mm. and it was good business. Um, it also happened that Fowler had run afoul of the law, if I can put it that way, in New York City during 1924. He'd been sued for criminal libel uh, by a, uh, a Catholic politician, uh, and he'd been under surveillance by the New York City Police Department for at least a year or so, along with other leaders in the New York area. So Fowler clearly had reasons to leave town. Uh, when Cowan arrived with this proposal for a Canadian clan and that Fowler come north and head it, uh, you can understand the appeal. And given that there was money associated with it for all concerns, uh, it spoke to the most pure motivations, I would argue, of the clan during the 1920s, which was to turn a profit. This is remarkable. How do you make money running a KKK? Uh, fascinating capitalist story, if I can call it that. Uh, the clan. Uh, after 1920, became extremely well organized in terms of its recruiting processes. Uh, you would have a Klegel appointed for a given sales area. I'm being quite explicit about saying that. Uh, for a certain jurisdiction, for a certain area, the Klegel would recruit members to the clan. They would be charged a fee to join. They would be charged a monthly fee or a quarterly fee to maintain their uh, membership and good standing, and they would almost certainly uh, rent their robes from the clan itself. So there was a, an ongoing rental fee associated with the robes. When we see these photographs of large gatherings of clan men and women in these very nicely tailored robes, uh, those aren't homemade. Uh, those are from a factory uh, on the outside outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, which was owned and operated by the Klan. So there was a whole follow-on marketing associated with the Klan, not just the selling of the membership and the monthly stay in good standing fee, but there was the regalia, there was the robes, and there were books and other and literature. And in the United States, the Klan even went into uh, into the movie business. So they were quite well organized and creating a generous revenue stream for the leadership. And that was what Fowler came north to take advantage of in a largely untapped market uh, for hate and for selling clan products. As I said earlier, your pictures are very vivid. Um, I noticed that the clan robes come with a maple leaf, a red maple leaf. Remarkable. It's uh, quite a well-tailored look. Uh, and it's uh, based on the American clan robes, obviously. But in order to cater to the Canadian market, uh, there had to be something that distinguished them from the Americans. So you get the nice red maple leaf in the red circle uh, for one branch of the clan. There was another branch of the clan, which came later after they started to break into factions, called the uh, 
Knights of the British Empire. Uh, they had a Union Jack uh, on their shoulder. So that was to distinguish the different, uh, different factions. Well, okay, so you're raising a very interesting point here that and, and you mentioned the, the, the structure. Can you tell us more? Was it the same structure across the country? Was this a federated organization? Did it have, it had different chapters from province to province? Is that how it worked? Yeah, the basic structure was the same as operated in the United States, which is to say you have your Kegel who creates a clavern with its members. Uh, they all pay money to the Kegel. The Kegel keeps about 40% of that for himself and uh, shares the rest with uh, headquarters in Atlanta. When they moved into the Canadian market, the same structure was used. You have your Kegel, you have your claverns. Uh, the fee structure depended on which part of the country you were in um, and what the market would bear. But primarily the money stayed with the Kegel. It stayed with Canadian headquarters and the Canadian headquarters in turn uh, forwarded a certain amount to Atlanta to the general clan coffers. So that was the basic model. Now it changed slightly across the country depending on how it was organized. Uh, when the clan originally started based out of Toronto, uh, there were a couple of other already existing clan organizations in the country. Uh, the Maritimes was under the uh, leadership, if you will, of a gentleman named uh, James Lord out of New Brunswick. On the West Coast, you had an American uh, called Major Luther Powell, who'd uh, been selling memberships into the lower mainland of British Columbia. And the fee structure there was largely the same, but they were not uh, the same national organization. Only with the creation of the Knights, Canadian Knights of the Ku Klux Klan in 1925, you have a true national organization, uh, which even then did not have much control over the, the maritime branches uh, on, or the western branches until James Lord was brought into the Toronto office. With his arrival in Toronto along with Fowler, uh, they effectively had the eastern Canadian market sewed up. And the West continued to be a bit of a, an outlier for the next few years. Uh, but eventually, they too were brought into the, uh, the national organization. It seems as though the leadership is imported straight from the United States. By and large, in the early years, it was. Uh, there was Fowler. Uh, James Henry Hawkins came north to join Fowler, uh, at least for the first year, 1925. By 1926, he'd forged off on his own uh, with his idea of creating the Knights of the British Empire. Uh, that didn't last very long, um, and he eventually ended up having to go back to the States. Um, but the leadership, by and large, in the early days was American, with the exception of, of James Lord. What makes the KKK eventually become Canadian? Is there a Canadian source to the KKK? A Canadian angle to the KKK? Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about demographics in the 1920s. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan in the United States was very much oriented against Black Americans, uh, Asian Americans, uh, a little bit against the Catholic Church, but only in the U.S. Northeast did that really have a, a, a prominence, and against uh, organized labor. When they arrive in Canada, the demographics are much different. Uh, Canada's black population is relatively small, 50,000 people or so, scattered across the country, most of it in Toronto, Montreal, and the Maritimes. Um, but what is a dominant feature of Canadian life 
is the Catholic Church and the role of Quebec and Francophone Canadians. And uh, all of a sudden, the Klan, which has always been very adept at uh, melding itself to local conditions, finds that uh, the Black population continues to be a target. But the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholics in general, uh, the role of French uh, in the school system in Canada, uh, particularly in Ontario and in the Maritimes, these become the targets of the Klan during the 1920s. Uh, Canadians of Asian descent, Japanese, Chinese, uh, these are also ongoing and increasingly important targets for the Klan. So if you will, it becomes a much more diverse target set for the Klan. Are the Indigenous people also targeted? Not so much, no, not during the 1920s. Uh, for Eastern Canadians, Indigenous people are largely out of sight on reserves. And in the West, in the wake of the 1884 rebellion and uh, the events that followed, uh, Indigenous peoples are simply not a political factor. And there's certainly no money to be made in targeting Indigenous peoples. I hate to be so crass, but that's effectively what it looks like. No, no, but it's, it's, a, it's a reality. And yet, and yet, we know that in Saskatchewan, uh, the Saskatchewan case of the KKK is is better known. I, I think of the work of James Pitsula uh, on on the KKK in, in in Saskatchewan. Can you tell us more about why Saskatchewan would be fertile ground for for the KKK? Yes, absolutely. Uh, James Pitsula's work is absolutely uh, critical to understanding of uh, the role of the Ku Klux Klan in the West and in Saskatchewan in particular. Uh, Saskatchewan in the early 1920s was uh, the destination of a large number of immigrants coming into Canada from Europe, looking for good land, farming land, and, and land grants. And so in Saskatchewan in particular, you have a population which up to then had been largely British in origin or French in origin. Uh, and you have a system of separate schools where French language rights are protected, and you have the involvement of the Catholic Church in those schools. And then all of a sudden you have an, uh, the arrival of this influx of immigrants from Europe, who are many of them uh, Catholic, a lot of Jewish uh, immigrants. Uh, and all of a sudden you have this wave of people arriving who are simply seen as a challenge to the existing British based establishment. And so when the Klan arrives in Moose Jaw, uh, of all places, in 1927, uh, and they start recruiting, then there's a very uh, palpable sense of resentment against the, the newcomers. They're taking the land, they're bolstering the Catholic Church, the role of French in the schools becomes increasingly salient. And so if you're a, an English-speaking, English-origin, uh, quite often from Ontario individual living in, in Saskatchewan, you're starting to feel the pressure. And the Klan tapped into that quite successfully. And so you have in the Saskatchewan of the late 1920s, early 1930s, a very robust Klan. Uh, the Klan is very well organized. They're as many as 25, 30,000 members spread across the province. A lot of resentment against the Catholic Church, French use in the schools. And politically motivated. They become politically active. 
Yes, an extremely active uh, clan. Uh, a lot of money to be made by the clan organizers, the Klegels. Uh, and they begin to see that the Liberal government of uh, Premier Jimmy Gardner uh, is the tool of, if you will, these newcomers. Uh, and they begin to organize to throw their weight uh, behind the Conservative Party, uh, which leads in 1929 to Jimmy Gardner and the Liberals being defeated, being replaced by the Conservatives, by and large with the support of the Ku Klux Klan, officially and unofficially. We associate the KKK with violence, and its membership did commit serious crimes. You talk about various cross-burnings and uh, bombings of two Catholic churches, I, as I recall reading your book, one of them in Quebec City, the Quebec City Basilica, and a church in Barrie, Ontario, if I, if I recall correctly. Just how many criminal acts do you think the KKK actually committed in Canada? I don't think we'll ever know with any certainty. Uh, I would say with respect to the burning of the Quebec Basilica, the Quebec fire marshal determined that that was more a case of negligence than any external actors. So I think the Klan took credit for it, and the rumors were that the Klan had been responsible for the Basilica burning and, and other burning, uh, other arsons in, uh, in, not arsons, but other uh, fires in Quebec and in the West. But really the only documented uh, fire targeting Catholic institutions was the bombing of St. Mary's Church in Barrie in 1926. And, uh, but there were certainly barn burnings, house burnings, uh, cross burnings across the country. Uh, and that was accompanied in many communities by a lot of informal violence, uh, attacks on individuals, uh, attacks on meetings. Um, and as I said, I don't think we'll ever know with any certainty uh, what the extent of the criminal activity was against uh, the Klan's targets, because how do you distinguish a, a, a beating in the street or a street fight, which starts with a with an insult from any other beating or attack in the street? And so it's difficult to know. Is it terrorism, Alan? Uh, at a low level, it was. Now, if we fast forward to the 1980s, we're into a much different environment. Well, let's talk about that, because the second half of your book, which focuses on the on the, um, the period after the Second World War, right up to today, gave me the sense that your, your writerly voice changed a little bit from that of a historian to someone who's been very interested in national security, in intelligence. You worked in the government of Canada in various uh, places in the government of Canada. You've spent most of your profession professional life there. And I got the impression that you were looking at it through different eyes. Um, what happens to the KKK after the Second World War? How, how is that, how does that organization change? Is it still an offshoot of the American group or has it been domesticated? What's your impression? Uh, the Klan in Canada was essentially non-existent after the Second World War. Um, there were individuals who claimed clan affiliation in this country, but there was no organized structure. By the time you get into the 1970s, though, you see a resurgence in the United States of the Ku Klux Klan, and you see a surge in this country of right-wing groups that are still within the 
normal range of political discourse, even if they've got views that some people look at as being extreme. But in 1979, 1980, in Toronto, you see the the appearance of a couple of young men, uh, James McCorder and Wolfgang Drogi, who've been involved in right-wing extreme politics in Toronto, and they've met David Duke, who's the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States, and they see an opportunity. And so they create the Ku Klux Klan of Canada uh, version two. And so in 1979, 1980, 1981, 1982, uh, you see Drogi and McWhorter very actively recruiting and creating what they now call dens rather than claverns uh, across the country. And there was a significant uptake uh, amongst mostly young people, but not always, uh, in joining the Klan and revived interest in the Klan's activities. And that's when you start to see in this country, on the West Coast, you see fire bombings, you see beatings, you see smallish riots, uh, you see attacks on black foreign students at, uh, uh, on the lower mainland, uh, you see street fights in Toronto. Uh, you start to see the beginnings of the kind of activity that the Klan is traditionally famous for, notorious for. And so it starts to become a very different kind of an organization than what we saw in the 1920s, which was largely commercially driven, profit driven. The 1980s is an ideological movement, very much uh, conditioned by what was going on in the States and what was going on in this country and, uh, and, and trending into violence in a way that was not healthy. I, I see a tension here between organized crime uh, versus a social movement or even an ideological movement. H how do you see that tension? Yes, I, I've, in the book I talk about uh, characterizations of the Klan as either a criminal organization or an organization of criminals. Um, and in some ways it's hard to tell the difference <laughs> because the most, most of the members of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1980s in Canada were engaged in various kinds of criminal activities of one kind or another. Um, and they mostly went to jail uh, for that for that involvement. Uh, McCorder, for example, was involved in forging documents. Uh, so he spent time in jail for that. He spent time in jail for being involved in a, uh, a coup attempt in the Caribbean. Uh, likewise, Wolfgang Drogi spent time in American jails. Uh, for his involvement in that aborted project. Drogi was a drug uh, seller. Um, so these, these were folks who were not, you know, the cream of society, but they had an ideological bent uh, that they used in their criminal activities and vice versa. So the Klan in this country in the 1980s and since has got a criminal tinge to it that really looks remarkably like organized crime in many ways. And you could argue, I think, back in the 1920s that the Klan was a manifestation of pyramid sales. Uh, not that pyramid sales are necessarily criminal, uh, but they certainly have an edge to them that uh, verges into conduct that you start to question. And indeed, when the Ontario Provincial Police initially took note of the Klan in, in that province, it was they were investigating fraud. Uh, around some of the Klan's activities and the selling of memberships. Did the KKK or does the KKK stand for anything except hate? I mean, is it just a hate organization or or was there ever an attempt to articulate 
I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to dignify it with these terms, but an ideological position or a, a view of the world that went beyond hate. Is it just a hate organization or is it more than that? Well, the Klan purported to have a political agenda in the Saskatchewan of the 1920s and 30s, um, mostly around hate-filled objectives like getting French out of the schools or getting the Catholic Church out of the schools or getting non-Canadians out of public offices. Uh, in the 1980s, it was get brown, black, or Asian immigrants out of the country. Uh, that's about as much of a political agenda as you can associate with the Klan. I was quite interested in looking at the Klan in the 1980s because it arrived at a time when we were going through constitutional discussions about reading the Constitution and the creation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I said to myself, well, this is clearly a political target that the Klan will latch onto and argue against because it will enshrine the kinds of uh, principles in, in Canada that the Klan is clearly opposed to. I found not a single record of the Klan leadership or Klan members engaging in any kind of a political discussion or making representations to our parliamentary committees about their views of a proposed Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which tells me the Klan had no political agenda, it had no political ideology worthy of the name, it was engaged in hate politics, pure and simple. Now, let me ask you the the, the classic Champlain Society question about your sources. How tough is it to document this story? What new sources were you able to use for your book? Uh, it's I found it really tough to document uh, <laughs> uh, the Klan's activities. When I looked at the Klan originally about 30 years ago, uh, I was lucky enough to find a couple of files in the public archives of Ontario, which originated with the Ontario Provincial Police. An inspector named John Miller had recruited a source to infiltrate the Klan. He paid the source with his own money, and he was trying to get his money back from, from the Ontario Provincial Police and the Department of the Attorney General. It was an expense account? <laughs> yes, exactly. He failed. Oh, really? Uh, as far as I can tell, he never did get his, his money back. It was only about $30, which was significant at that time. Sure. But he didn't get his money back. But what he did was generate a lot of paper about the Klan and how the police were treating the Klan and how they viewed it. So that was my initial introduction to sources on the Klan. Uh, because when you look at, or you, when I looked at the time, exceedingly difficult to find anything uh, in archives on the Klan, difficult to find anything in uh, newspaper files on the Klan because it was a long time ago. It wasn't well organized. Fast forward 30 years, all of a sudden what you find in archives is a lot of material has been digitized. You find newspapers have been digitized and you start to find uh, photographs that have been digitized. So it became a question of simply running hundreds and hundreds of searches in archives uh, at the national level, provincial level, and at the local level for files on the Klan. And I came across some quite useful material. Uh, university archives are also now digitized in a way they weren't uh, even 20 years ago. So all of a sudden this material, if, once you start understanding who the figures are within the Klan leadership, when you understand the issues that they were interested in, when you understand the criminal bent of many Klan members, 
then you start to find material that's not organized in any coherent way across the country. But if you start to pull it together, it does start to tell a story. And I'd like to think that's what I've been able to do with, with this particular book. Well, I have to agree. Uh, you've produced a very important book on a very depressing topic, uh, and that's no small feat. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I didn't really particularly want to go back into researching the Klan when it was first proposed to me. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it's now done in some respects, uh, because I too found it depressing. And But it also gave me a sense of why it needed to be done. Given the times we live in, it seemed to me at any rate that we see many familiar trends that need to be identified and and dealt with in public policy. Uh, and we're doing a better job of it than some places, but still, I think we need to be cognizant of our history. Sadly, it's very topical. And uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to speak to me about it. It was my pleasure. That was Alan Bartley, adjunct professor of history at Carleton University and the author of The Ku Klux Klan in Canada, A Century of Promoting Racism and Hate, in the Peaceable Kingdom, and it's published by Formac. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the pandemic on January 11th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.